Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, we are filming season three of the Honey and Hustle podcast live at the Durham Bottling Co. right in downtown Durham. We're about to get into a great conversation, but before we do that, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to share this episode with someone who you think might get some value from it. Feel free to tag me on the podcast on social media, and I'll be sure to put those links on the video and in the description below. If you're listening to the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser. Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps others find the show and lets me know how I'm doing at this video podcast thing. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to check out our affiliate links, shop our merch, and subscribe to the Honeypot newsletter and this YouTube channel, all at the links in the description. Without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so the pandemic probably has been treating you really well as a writer since you don't really have to like go anywhere. Um, how has it been since you started Black Oak Society around the time of the pandemic? So kind of tell me what that's been like for you and um, finding venues to express yourself and really get the word out about your thoughts on um, society and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good question. So it was definitely an accelerant <laughs> for me because, you know, my my spouse had a, you know, a corporate day job, ended up putting, you know, he was on extended family leave kind of on his way out. And so I had just started writing professionally um, in like July of 2019. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, that was kind of like, the only plan we had for other money coming in besides the family leave money. Mm -hmm. And so I just started taking everything. I went into like that black girl hustle mode and just like whatever somebody wanted me to write, I was writing like, you know, black business columns. I was writing articles. I was writing, you know, reporting pieces, anything that someone would let me do. And, um, the great part about that is it was a ton of practice. Mm-hmm. So I got to work with a lot of great editors, the folks at Scalawag Magazine, which is based nice. in Durham, mm-hmm. Walter Magazine in Raleigh, um, the Carolinian, which is a historic black newspaper in Raleigh as well, and um, a lot of other folks who really just helped me become a better writer and, and also to realize what I wanted to be writing about. Mm-hmm. So by the time um, I started thinking about Black Oak Society, I realized that I was gravitating more towards these stories about Raleigh's black history. Mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of like the outlet that I wanted to really express that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say since moving here, I moved here May of 2019. So I haven't been here very long at all. Yeah. Um, And Durham, of course, has this very um, 
open and honest uh, feeling when it comes to sharing the history of Durham and mm-hmm. Black Wall Street and that sort of thing and just this culture of entrepreneurship that has been here among not only blacks but immigrants right, and, right. and everybody. Um, but Raleigh is not um, as um, openly expressive mm-hmm. of its history mm-hmm. and of um, black people and um, how um, that culture has shifted as it's become the capital city and, right. and that sort of thing. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, your realization of this lack of expression and how you've been going about telling those stories. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I don't want to be really corny here, but it was a tough acorn to crack, you know? <laughs> like Raleigh is really hard to get into, and I think you said, you know, beautifully, Angela, that it's, it's a capital city. And so a lot of the the black history of Raleigh is tied into the government history of Raleigh. And it's hard to kind of, you know, untangle that stuff when folks don't want to have all this stuff out there. And so um, I made a really good friend um, around November 2019. His name is Mr. Joseph Holt Jr., who um, he was one of the first children to attempt to desegregate yeah, desegregate um, Raleigh City Schools, which was like the public school system at the time. And um, I became really good friends with him. And he was just like this repository of all of this history. And um, it really kind of opened my eyes to know that the stories are out there, but people really want to tell their stories and they really, really want to be heard. And so I was able through my work as a journalist to like go to people in the community um, in these like historically black areas and neighborhoods that were so quickly gentrifying and changing and people losing their homes and moving um, to really talk to them about what they wanted to say. And so that really became that focus and and that's where I found the most information and also the most support. You know, those folks ended up becoming huge supporters of the magazine and of my work outside of Boss. Um, But yeah, it was really about finding who wanted to talk about it because not everybody wants to talk about this stuff. But once you find it, it's like you're kind of in and then everybody wants to like come to you because you're the person that's that's sharing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's been interesting to see the rise in storytelling, specifically um, untold stories, minority-owned stories, yeah. and that sort of thing. And I think there is a reluctance, even when the stories are kind of like by the community, for the community, there is that reluctance of like, you know, I don't know if I want my name associated with that. And I think part of that, too, is, you know, could be attached to... Um, economic status, economic class. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people are like, you know, I already may not have a whole lot to give now, and I don't have a, a lot to lose, and I don't want to lose right. what I have. Absolutely. And so, you know, when we talk about tough topics like gentrification, you know, for people who may, maybe that was their way of trying to accumulate generational wealth, and now mm-hmm. that's gone because mm-hmm. they're being priced out, or, you know, certain things as it relates to the workforce, which is a really big topic right now, Yeah. and ownership of commercial spaces by black-owned businesses, just all these things oh, that yeah. could really negatively reflect on someone and negatively impact someone who shares their story like there is that reluctance that is there so how have you been able to navigate that type of of really just distrust of media and journalists yeah yeah I mean it's definitely real and it's something that I definitely learned through trial and error but I think what I had working for me is like a real genuine curiosity. So I really, really wanted to hear what they had to say. And whatever that was, 
I didn't feel so much that I had to get a certain story out of them. I wanted to hear the story that they wanted to tell me. Mm -hmm. And so that is what helped me establish trust. And I think the other thing was like, I'm a Raleigh girl. I was raised in Raleigh. I've lived here since I was three years old. And so that is a part of it. Being a black woman is definitely a part of it. And I really, I promise people, and I, and this is kind of against like J school rules. I'm so sorry. I'm not, Jesus it's okay. Christ. <laughs> Why? Why is this happening? Okay. Sorry. No, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of against the J school rules to like, you know, let people read certain parts of the article that you, that you're writing about them. But when it comes to my elders, you know, like the elders of the community, I, my loyalty is with them. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully there were people that I came across that kind of helped me navigate that. So I did it properly. Mm -hmm. But um, regardless, like that was my, that was where my values were. Were like, I want them to feel 100% about what I'm putting out into the world when it comes to representing them. Because that stakes are so high. Mm -hmm. You know, there are opportunities and, and um, access and resources that could be blocked because of, you know, kind of interpreting something the wrong way, or it's really important, I think, also um, people getting the credit they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so there's one instance where I was writing a story and, and one of the subjects was like, no, 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 this is this person was not involved in this way. It was this person. And this, this is the name that needs to be put in association with this action. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this is like the most eyes that a lot of these stories have ever gotten, you know, up to a certain point and so it is really important to make sure all the facts are straight the right people are getting the the respect and the um clout and the recognition that they deserve for their work and a lot of people aren't even around anymore and so it's really just kind of like i a lot of people were kind of carrying this um almost like a promise a dedication to the people that came alongside them and before them like I promised to make sure that this person was remembered mm -hmm. and this is an opportunity to get their name out there. So it's got to be right. Mm -hmm. And um, all of that stuff is like, I think the stuff that maybe sometimes white journalists don't think about when they're coming into the community, that it's that these stories are not just, you know, um, they're not everybody's story is important, but sometimes when you, go through life so ignored and, and unseen and, and even like repressed and oppressed, you know, mm -hmm. as far as your voice is concerned, that when this when a story is able to break through all of that, there's a lot of expectation behind it mm -hmm. um, and how it should be presented. So that, I mean, it's just the way it is. And I'm thankful that I've been able to tell some of those stories. Yeah. So let's talk about ownership of stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because you kind of very clearly stated, like, journalists, you know, typically do not allow people, the subjects of their stories, to read the story before it is finished. But you were like, you know, I'm breaking that rule because my loyalty is not to a paper, it's to these people, right? Yeah. And we want to respect their time and respect their stories. But this isn't to say you couldn't tell a story about a white person or a white person can't tell a story about a person of color, but there has been some concern mm -hmm. over exploitation. There has been Absolutely. some concern over a lack of cultural relativity when it comes to telling certain stories. Mm -hmm. So could you talk to me and the people listening and watching a little bit about your perspective on how like 
interracial relationships has played into a lot of these conversations that are coming to the forefront of media and journalism now that we really haven't seen up until this point. You know, it was mm -hmm. just like a story was told by somebody mm -hmm, featuring mm -hmm. this other person. It wasn't really a conversation about why this story was told a certain way because it was done by this person and this subject was of this culture that maybe they weren't as in tune to. Right, right. That's an excellent question. And I and I feel like there's a lot of practices and, and like intellectual theories within black academia that is rooted in impact, right? And so it's not just about like, you know, studying James Baldwin and, and studying the, the syntax and why he chooses these certain words and everything. Like everything is so contextual. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you dive into like James Baldwin and you start digging, it makes you it compels black folks most often to action. I mean, I think James Baldwin is amazing. I think he compels a lot of people to action, but especially us, it's like, okay, like what are we gonna do with this? Mm -hmm. And I think that Traditional journalism is not created in that way from that standpoint. And so the story is the objective. So it's just about getting the story out there um, and getting people's eyes on the story, of course. But it's not really about the community itself, where the story comes from, is not in the forefront of a traditional journalist's mind. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is, um, it is changing, thankfully. Um, there's some really great different organizations and journalists and, and um, publications that have really kind of spearheaded the idea of like solutions journalism, activism journalism, and so forth. Um, but the but I think in particular when it comes to almost like cultural competency around storytelling, um, there I think folks' eyes are opening to the fact that I think one of the moments that it really busts wide open for me was the insurrection. Mm -hmm. And I know that's kind of later in the game, but it was really one of those like defining moments where I remember the day it happened, I popped on Clubhouse and um, there was a room for black journalists and reporters and they were just kind of like really mourning and grieving and, and kind of like unloading a lot of the emotional weight that they had been carrying before this happened and then obviously watching it happen. Some of them were on the ground in D.C. while it was happening. Mm. And a lot of what they said is like, we've been saying this has been coming for years. Yeah. We've been saying it's coming. And um, that is a unique perspective, I think, for black folks because we've always had to have that intuitive ability to sense danger and 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 shifts and changes in white society for our own safety yeah. and so we are able by survival and yeah. <laughs> microevolution to be able to kind of read the writing on the wall and if you're not in that space if you're not if that's not your experience there's going to be a lot of things that you look at much more cynically much more kind of like passively mm -hmm. and and those are the things where we're like we can't really afford to be passive about that and so i think in that moment when the insurrection happened a lot of folks were like taken by surprise most of us were not. Most of us were kind of in the place of like, kind of the exhaustion and the, and the sadness of wanting to 
kind of be that, you know, Paul Revere. <laughs> like, we were that person, and but because we're black, we were ignored, and this is what happened. And it was a really, really powerful reckoning, I think, within the, I think, larger journalism community, but particularly within the black journalism community of just being like, look, like, we have to trust ourselves, and that means we have to start creating our own outlets, and we have to start finding new ways to reach people, mm -hmm. because our side of the story, our perspective is, is vital. Right. To the, you know, survival of all of us. Yeah. Um, when we talk about even black journalists experiencing silencing or manipulation or, you know, just simply neglect on the job. Mm -hmm. um, and in this space that is independent media, even still, you yeah. know, you have to work pretty hard. To, I, would, I wouldn't say work pretty hard. Maybe that's not a fair assessment. But you do have to put in the work to create a platform that builds trust with yeah. your audience um, in any case, you know, especially when it comes to reporting news, which, yeah. you know, people want to be impartial, but we are learning that that is just simply not always the case. Right. Um, especially, you know, like there are facts and then there are the contexts that make the facts true. Right. right. And so in a world of alternative facts and, you know, whatever that means. Yeah. That's um, a really convenient yeah, word. Yeah. Right. In a world of, of where people construe their opinion and their news and their perspective to also be fact, um, what are some ways that, you know, you feel or that you've seen that independent creators, independent artists, independent journalists, independent media outlets that are minority-focused, minority-owned, um, are working to create uh, a place where being woke or being honest about, you know, the 1619 Project mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. critical race theory and being honest about what well, all of these major you know, buzzwords in media now are becoming and what they mean mm -hmm. for not only people of color, but for this country at large. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing about language and about the way that, so the way that mainstream media is handling it is they're just kind of like chasing after the dragon's tail, basically. It's like whatever's trending on Twitter, mm -hmm. they're reporting on. And because they're reporting on that, right beside things that are actually true. There's, um, I don't remember what the essay is, but Toni Morrison mm. talks a lot, you know, did an essay about this where the way that news is packaged, especially on TV, and when you have a bunch of different stories kind of put together side by side, so you have like, of course, top of the hour, a black man knocks over a convenience store. That's always kind of like one of the first things you see on you know your local news. And then beside that, you see um, the latest traffic accident. And then beside that, you see something happening on the white at the White House. And all those things are beside each other. And so that is communicating priority mm. and communicating importance and communicating like the most kind of significant impacting stories that are happening right now. Right. And so that is a very, that's very biased, first of all, mm -hmm. of course, because, you know, there's a lot of messages there that don't really pertain to anyone or can be easily misconstrued. And so, yeah, and so you have that type of behavior around these words like woke. And so you see woke is trending. And so they spend all this time usually talking to the wrong people, but kind of like, what does this mean? And is it good or bad? And et cetera, et cetera. When 
like you said, the objective is truth. Yeah. The objective was never unbiased news or objective news. The the purpose of the news is to tell people the truth. Yeah. And so I think what's happening is a lot of black storytellers and journalists um, and just journalists of color in general are kind of like abandoning the idea of a bias or unbiased kind of like balanced news situation and they're just like it's that none of that really matters that's a construct by a you know a dominant culture that decided what balance meant balance is not like some you know um balance is not an objective concept somebody decides what balance means yeah and and the dominant culture decides that balance looks like what I just said before. Right. We know that that's not close to any of those things. And so we just are like, okay, we're going to tell the stories that are truthful, Mm -hmm. the stories that are most impacting for us and our communities. I think the localization and even the micro-localization of news is something that's really powerful and happening right now. Um, And the different ways the news is being disseminated so people can have the information they need. So via texting, via TikTok, things of that nature. Um, And and really just like we're kind of creating it's kind of, it's a it's a full circle moment because we're creating our own way mm-hmm. so it's a very very innovative fast paced kind of moment right now but it's also very um kind of full circle and retro when there was a time where there were a lot of black owned radio stations and a lot of black owned news outlets mm-hmm. and even like the church program had stories and right. and directories and things of that nature resources and things that that informed the community right we're, so we're kind of getting back to our roots in a way but of course with all the technology that we have now yeah yeah I do like that perspective I do think we're getting back to it because I think yeah. you know like there was a time where you know magazines like my first magazine subscription was Essence mm, and yeah. then like there is this time where Essence kind of like magazines in general like oh people aren't buying magazines as much anymore right. you saw a lot less on the shelves and Walmart that's like not the thing that you see right like, the checkout course. counter anymore it's like snacks or whatever yeah um and then now you see this resurgence of the way magazines are being packaged now they're not just print you're also digital they're right, also yeah. like zines and mm-hmm. things like that so making it more accessible for independent creators independent uh journalists to get their media yeah. out there and then now podcasting of course right. I think and I want I dislike this trend, but I do see it happening where people are feeling as though mainstream media, whether that's TV, news, uh, newspapers, magazines, are not being truthful. And so they feel like podcasts are a way where they can have an unfiltered, Mm -hmm. um, unscripted conversation about their perspective. And you see a lot more politicians on podcasts. You see a lot more public figures being on podcasts. Um, and things like that because I feel like they can be more honest Mm -hmm. and I I don't know if that was ever the unintentional podcast but it wasn't necessarily like this is where you can go to air out your grievances or Mm -hmm. air out your perspective and just say whatever you want without um without repercussions and without consequences and we're seeing that kind of reckoning happen as well where people are going to these independent 
platforms and hoping they can say what they want no matter the level of truth right and nothing is going to to happen right and so um, when it comes to black oak society and other journalists who are like okay listen mainstream media doesn't want to hear the stories that we're mm-hmm. we're saying because mm-hmm. they feel like you know our bias and our cultural perspective on this um taints the story even right though, even though it is truthful absolutely and so what has been your you know kind of ethos or um creative process when it comes to putting out stories that you know do have that cultural perspective kind of baked in now and do have that collaborative feel rather than objective kind of distance right right, that journalists tend to have had in the past when you tell stories yeah that wow that's like there's a there's a lot of good stuff there so I feel like it's interesting because we're kind of in the middle of this whole like Joe Rogan Spotify moment and I and it reminds me of something that people talked about but only for a brief second but the whole Candace Owens Donald Trump moment yes and I think I'm not I'm sure I'm not the only journalist out there who was just like just cursing just a string of just (laughs) the worst words coming out like just the heat of your body coming up watching (laughs) this happen because it's like it's making a mockery of what we do Mm -hmm. and I think that's what some podcasts out there like sitting down and having a conversation is not the same as having an interview right because there's a different objective and I think there are a lot of folks like a Joe Rogan or others who are really interesting to talk to they're great conversationalists and they're good at getting people to say like crazy shit. I don't know if we can curse, (laughs) but what they don't do is they do not have the training or really even the, the kind of proclivity or whatnot to probe and really like force someone to kind of get to what they really think or what they really mean and then kind of challenge that to be like well this is what other folks are saying or this is what the data says or that you know what I mean like the follow-up questions are just so weak mm-hmm. that it's not it's not an interview it's a conversation and so I think that's why public figures feel so safe is because if you have any I'm assuming because I haven't had media training but I'm assuming if you've had any semblance of meeting media training mm-hmm. you've been taught how to deal with interviewers you've been taught how to deal with journalists mm-hmm. because they come at their work in a certain way yeah. well these hosts <laughs> don't have that so you don't have to worry about any of that you can say whatever you want mm-hmm. and get really very little pushback yeah. and so that is a struggle and um, I think even you know you see what happened with um was it Cardi B recently on a podcast or Nicki Minaj? I can't remember. But one of them, you know, where they ended up having to sue the podcaster for libel. Oh, was that Ari Lennox? Oh, yeah, Ari Lennox. Lennox. Yeah, Yeah. because they're asking questions that are inappropriate. That's kind of the other side of it, right? It's like you're dealing, you you might be dealing with a celebrity or public figure or someone, but you're still dealing with with a human being Mm -hmm. and that their ethics around how you, you know, handle these types of things. And so all of that to say, I think one of the things, of course, is we're both black. You know, we have an experience. Mm -hmm. We're both, you know, um, femme presenting. And so we have that experience. And there's all these things that we can kind of, because we're creating these types of spaces for each other and ourselves, Mm -hmm. we can, we can, there's like an unspoken like contract between how we're going to treat each other right. with respect. Like you want to be treated with respect as an interviewer mm-hmm. and, and as black people, we're going to treat each other with respect mm-hmm. because that's the kind of space that we want. Mm-hmm. And so that 
allows kind of like kind of like it kind of sets the stage in a really beautiful way which I think allows us to create some really really powerful spaces for storytelling because those types of things are already established right. and then I think the more folks who come in with the training will allow us to tell more impacting stories and deeper stories um also we have a storytelling heritage yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean like yeah. the oral history part of our heritage the the black church aspect of yeah. our heritage and um actually the the educators yeah. you know we come from a heritage that really really prizes education and educators mm-hmm. and um that's all a part of our DNA and mm-hmm. so I see even the newest kind of folks in the game kind of coming with that sensibility that they really want the truth. Yeah. And, um, and that's just really encouraging. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned something that I do want to kind of end on here, which is, um, black women and just kind of who we are as people. Um, and there are a lot of things being said right now in the public, um, both from a data perspective and from mm-hmm. a cultural perspective about, you know, we both probably know this. Maybe people here listening may not know that mm-hmm. black women by demographic are the highest educated, you know, demographic. You yeah. know, we know these things about each other. We yeah. know what it means to have that black girl hustle that you talked about. Yeah. You just put our head down at work and just like everything else. And wait, you know, bills got to be paid. Food needs to be on the table. We know that grind and we know that innovation that breeds from uh, struggle or just striving Mm -hmm. for greater or for stability or for whatever it is that we want in this life and so but other people and it's just unspoken like I you didn't I didn't have to ask you to explain well what's the black girl hustle I didn't have to ask you to explain this because I get it but you know there is a whole country and world out there that doesn't get it Mm-hmm. Right. That doesn't get it that, you know, only thinks of February as this is my time to highlight the five black women that I know they're doing great. Yeah. You know, they don't see the work that we put in the rest of the year or they choose not to acknowledge it. Right. 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 Um, so when we talk about the perception of black women as it comes to leadership, when it comes to our ability to innovate, um, when it comes to our ability to organize, mm-hmm, when it mm-hmm. comes to, you know, our really um, just focus on community-driven yeah. efforts and impact, right? What are some of your thoughts on, you know, this greater narrative that really doesn't see those values, Um in black women of leadership, because I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking of all the pushback that is being given right now um, for Biden's commitment to nominate a black woman uh, to the Supreme Court. And nobody's been named. Right. Nobody's been named. But we're already seeing multiple people, multiple people saying, you know, I don't think they're going to be qualified. You know, I don't think. And it's just like, how can you? Yeah. Or like they're only black women, are only six percent of the population. Why should they only be considered? Why should the 94 percent be ignored? Wow. Um, Ignored is a powerful word. Yes. (laughs) You know, know, I'm hearing all these things, um, but I think there is a greater culture that doesn't really get it, doesn't really understand it. Um, But they are the ones that are speaking out right now very heavily. We Mm -hmm. haven't seen in the popular space. Let me just say that. I'm not saying people aren't talking about it. I'm just saying we're not seeing it in the popular space where people are posting the or talking about the antithesis of that of why right. it's important yes. mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. have a black woman considered for the supreme court yeah I, that's a very very good point and there's like whoo um so i think 
First of all, the other side of the work I do is I'm a consultant. I work in like anti-racism and liberation work. I like to say I'm the liberation practitioner instead of an anti-racism coach because there's like a less story behind that, but I'll just leave that there. <laughs> but the, one of the, I think one of the hallmarks and the saddest aspects of white supremacy is a lack of curiosity. Mm. Just a general... Because if you are superior and you're supreme, what is there you need to know? Like, there's not really anything you need to know that's going to change the fact that you're better than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and this is kind of like the white supremacist delusion. And so, of course, there are going to be people kind of coming out with these statements completely unfounded, no data backing it up, or very cherry-picked, you know, poorly curated data. Um, that are and saying things that are completely untrue, but that's what they believe because they've never really thought about this before. Mm -mm. It just sounds like something that they believe that they deserve, that they're not getting. And, um, and so that, I think, is the first piece. But I think the second piece that you said about there not being an antithesis out there, like the pushback that this deserves, I think is the number one problem with the mainstream media today is that there are there are spaces when you know there's spaces to talk about critical race theory or about this type of situation where you know anything from like Vice President Harris and her capacity to do her work to the these judges, um, et cetera, et cetera. You hear it's everything's just so one sided, mm -hmm. and it, it forces people to battle against straw men because what really should be said is that none of this is true and the reason why you have a problem with it is because you're a racist <laughs> and that's the only reason there's no other reason you know this is a you problem yeah. and um but that would be the news indicting itself right that would be kind of like white men holding themselves accountable about their feelings mm -hmm. and that's not a common occurrence. And so we end up in a situation where you're right. And I think I want to pull from something slightly different, but when the the Omicron variant was being talked about as like coming from South Africa and then there were all these travel restrictions from on South Africa because of that. Mm -hmm. One thing that I really loved and I got a lot of inspiration from were the doctors, the South African doctors who were coming on TV and saying, no, this did not start here. We did not create a virus. We have some of the most advanced technology in the world, and we were able to find out what it was and name it. Mm -hmm. This has been in several other countries, in Europe and South America, even before it was here. Yeah. And yet we're the only ones being treated this way because you are racist. Yeah. We gave you the name and the information, and then you tried to screw us over. And I think that is what we need is folks to do the same thing, mm -hmm. is to come on these shows and not even really give credence to this are they or are they not qualified conversation and come and say, black women are not especially unqualified to do anything. Right. They're, they ha can have just the same qualifications and there would never be a black woman who'd be nominated who did not have the qualifications to be a judge. Yeah. And so to even make that assumption is just racist. Yeah. And, then, and so somebody just kind of calls it out and exposes it for what it is and says, you would never say that about anyone else. Yeah. We literally have an unqualified justice right now. 
Well, he had an unqualified president. Right. <laughs> I mean, Amy Coney Barrett never heard a case. No. As a judge. And so why are we talking about qualified and not qualified? I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would like to see yeah. pulled out instead of, you know, kind of the conversations that we have right now. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I think, I don't know. I could go on a whole spiel, which I want to. Yeah. Because, you know. But. Um, Got to keep the blood pressure down. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I think I just, I, I have to come to terms with that every time I turn a camera on, every time I walk into a room that, you know, until somebody knows me personally, this is probably what's in the back of their mind, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I yeah. think, you know, a lot of the cherry picking as well comes from, well, I, know, I have black friends, you know, I have black neighbors, you know, I have black people that I work with and that I respect. So even then, when people are ignorant or negligent to acknowledge their own bias and own perspective on life and perspective on race and perspective on people that do not look like them or mm -hmm. act like them or have the same economic class as them or social class as them, you know, it is a recognition that their perspective is going to be limited by what they know. Yeah. Right. So going back to that lack of curiosity of like you're saying these things because you really haven't taken the time to even talk to maybe the one black person that you do know. Right. About is, right. You know, there, there hasn't been that conversation. You're just spitting from your perspective and not and not really facing the repercussions of that. So Absolutely. I think that's a gap in the journalism market that I would love to see filled very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm not out there. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. How can we find Black Oak Society if, for people watching and viewing? Yeah, so um, www.blackoaksociety.com It has our blog there. It has um, our shop there, so you can get all the magazines that have come out thus far, some merch, etc. Mm -hmm. You can follow us at Black Oak Society on all the platforms. Platform. Well, not all of them. I don't know how to work Snapchat. I'm 35. Um, but on Instagram and Facebook, we are there. And um, we have some really exciting things coming up, working on our sixth issue. We have an art exhibition, our very first, coming out in May. Okay. And, um, and we also are starting a podcast. Nice. So, nice. yeah, next month. So um, just kind of follow us, turn on notifications, because there's going to be a lot of stuff coming down the nice. pipe soon. Nice. Super excited. Thank you again so much. I appreciate Thank the blue. You. Here. Thank you. And the shirt. And I just appreciate it. Raleigh designer. You can get it at Target. Target's not, you know, paying me, unfortunately, but go go rep go rep Raleigh. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay.